There was a number of questions from esteemed members of the group that I, I thought would be good to, I mean, basically two in particular I'd like to put to you because they, people were, were asking, um, and I think there might be, usually, you know, if there's one or two people asking the question, that may reflect 20 people thinking it. Um, and so I wondered if I could put them both to you. One of them is just a simple thing that came at the end of the notes that you hadn't covered, which was that in the notes you talk about, you know, the old prophet who is deceived and then still gets in trouble. And basically, could you talk about that? Or are we going to lose that bit of notes because it, we started the next session? So I think there was just a bit of appetite for you. <laughs> that weird story. I imagine you may, perhaps you're going to bring it, come on to that anyway. Um, the other one was a, a sort of supplementary question to the whole sort of the analogy really between the Galatian Judaizers and the Roman Catholic Church and the way that you know, denying the narrative of Jesus's life and death and resurrection being the standard of what the gospel is. And I suppose to put the point in its sharpest form, would the Galatian Judaizers not have believed the gospel? In Didn't they, surely they believe the gospel? As you've explained it, as you've told the story, they'd say, yeah, I believe Jesus died and rose again. I believe all of those things too. But of course, Paul doesn't think that's good enough. And he explodes and says, you anathema. Yeah. And so how would you respond to the charge that actually your description of the gospel in that way doesn't actually get us off the hook from anathematizing people who do deny justification by faith alone. That's the, that's the question that's, that's come from a couple, and I thought it was a good one, so I wanted to see, yeah. give you a chance to respond to that. Yeah, uh, let me start with the first question about First uh, Corinthians 13. I was, I was bringing that up at the end of a talk on the divided kingdom, because I think that that, um, that uh, story functions as a kind of allegory of the history of Israel and Judah. One of the striking things about the, the account is that uh, the characters are never named, but they're identified by, um, by their uh, origin, place of origin. So the man of God comes from Judah, associated with Judah. The old prophet is um, he's identified by his age, but also by the fact that he's in Bethel, which is this uh, place where Jeroboam setting up this shrine. Even Jeroboam in the course of chapter 13 is never named. He's just called the king. So you have these characters that are kind of functioning, setting, uh, uh, taking, taking sort of allegorical roles. I think I'm, it's not to say that the event didn't happen. I think this event happened. But I think what we're looking at is uh, to summarize, it's something along these lines. Uh, you have the man of God from Judah who is faithfully confronting the idolatry of the Northern, of the Northern King. Uh, and, uh, but he gets, uh, seduced and fooled by the uh, old prophet from Bethel, who is identified with this uh, center of uh, idolatrous worship in Bethel, uh, and that uh, um, that uh, old prophet convinces him that the Lord's instructions have changed, and uh, so uh, the. Uh, the man of God from Judah goes and visits the old prophet's home and sits down and eats with him when he was told not to eat in the northern kingdom. Um, and because of that, he's killed kind of bizarrely on the road. So what we have there is, a, I think, a, a preview of what's going to happen to Judah and Israel. Um, you have uh, the, uh, the representative of Judah is deceived by the representative of the northern kingdom. They're both true prophets, but one of them is lying. Uh, in this particular case, the old prophet is the man of God of Jude, The man of God from Judah falls for it, and uh, that's a, a kind of a an allegor sort of allegorical preview of 
Judah's corruption by the idolatries of the Northern Kingdom, which, which is part of what happens through the course of Kings. Uh, and then um, Judah is going to be is going to be destroyed because of that, because they were seduced by the Northern Kingdom. Uh, and the end of the story, though, is that both of them are placed in the same grave. The, the man of God from Judah dies first, and he's put in the grave. But when the old prophet dies, he wants to be placed in the same grave. Uh, and, uh, of course, the sequel to the story is that that grave is preserved. Uh, uh, Josiah does not exhume the bodies and, and defile the bodies in, uh, second, in second Kings. So I think what we have there is an allegory of the interaction of Judah and Israel and the union of Judah and Israel, the union of these two prophets uh, placed in the grave um, that, uh, uh, so I, I, and that was, that was the, that was the, that was the point of the bringing up that story. I think it, it reinforces on that reading, it reinforces the point I was making about exile, the grave of exile being the place where Judah and Israel are reunited. So on the Galatians question, um, I think that I mean this gets into a, a lot of a lot of uh, contested territory about the force of Galatians. Um, I think it's uh, I, I think it's important to see the um, the thing that the thing that is seen as a violation. I mean, I'm I'm looking at chapter two right now. Uh, the thing that's seen as a violation, Galatians two, that is. Uh, the thing that's seen as a violation of the gospel in Peter's actions, in Peter's, uh, in Peter's life, is not uh, teaching that you're saved by works. The thing that, is, uh, the thing that drives Paul, uh, 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 dry, uh, that uh, makes Paul angry and uh, uh, incensed against Peter is that Peter uh, refuses to eat with Gentiles. But Paul sees that refusal of union with Jews and Gentiles as a violation of justification by faith. Let me read Galatians 2, 14 and following. Uh, when I saw that, you, that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, which is what he was doing as long as the, the Judaizers weren't around, how is it that you compelled the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature, not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, Knowing the man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we are just uh, that we are just that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. For if seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found sinners. Is Christ then made uh, a minister of sin? If I rebuild what I once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. So the the um, that's. That's the, in, that's the first place where we have justification by faith come up in Galatians. And it has to do with table fellowship. Uh, Peter refused to eat with Gentiles, even though these Gentiles uh, profess Jesus, confess Jesus as their Lord, um, but he doesn't share a table with them. He's maintaining the divisions of the old, of the law. Um, uh, there's perhaps concerns about, uh, about uh, unclean foods, perhaps uh, 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 concerns about contamination by contact with Gentiles, which is kind of an um, extra biblical uh, concern, uh, uh, not part of the purity laws of Leviticus, but part of the purity tradition of the Pharisees. Whatever, whatever Peter's concerned about, he's, he's maintaining the division of Jew and Gentile 
And Paul sees that as a, a violation of justification by faith. And I think the logic here is that justification uh, means that uh, each of us is acceptable to God in Christ Jesus. That's, that's the basis of our acceptance. And because we are each accepted, we must, we must accept one another uh, at, and be, recognize each other as table companions. Um, so, uh, and I th so in that sense, the Judaizers, so let me step back and, and, and say more broadly what I think is going on with the Judaizers and in response to the question more directly. Uh, the Judaizers would say, yeah, Jesus died, rose again. What they would not admit is that that brings in this new, um, this new pattern of life among the people of God, where all these barriers between Jews and Gentiles have been, have been cast down. Uh, and uh, to, to, that, to that extent, I think they're not, uh, they're not accepting the narrative that I laid out. I, I, I gave the narrative of, as Jesus Dead, died and risen, but I think part of that story is Jesus dying, rising again, in order to constitute a new humanity in himself. He's the last Adam. And that union of Jews and Gentiles in his own body is, uh, that's, a, it, that's, a, that's a, a, a part of the gospel message. It's a direct implication of the gospel message. And it seems to me that that's the central concern of Judaizers. I don't, I don't think that the, the Judaizers resemble medieval Catholics and cert to certain extent modern Catholics in certain respects. I don't think that they resemble them because they're teaching a, a merit system. Uh, that, I don't think that's what the Judaizers are about. I think the Judaizers are about maintaining those, uh, the divisions of the law um, in the face of the fact that Jesus has come and brought in this new order of things. So um, I, I, that's what I think is the the issue in Galatians. That might help to. No, that is very helpful. And we we actually we actually ran. I know a lot of us weren't there, so this doesn't help. But we actually ran. I I agree with that perspective on Galatians, and we ran this conference on Galatians four years ago, um, which is why. So we probably would. There might be supplementary questions behind that as well, but that's why we'll probably draw a line under it there. But it sounds like the, the, in essence you're saying that what the Judaizers were doing was substantially more egregious than what the Council of Trent did even though both are wrong because the Judaizers are denying the newness of humanity comprised yeah. in, yeah, in Christ in a way that Roman Catholicism did not. And I, yeah. well, I, might, I get, be, I get, might disagree with that answer, but I think as in others might disagree, but I think that's the, as you're, yeah. you're using that analogy, I think that's a helpful defense of, of why. Yeah. And I do think that, I do think that there's some analogies, even if you take this angle on Galatians, um, the, I think there are analogies with what was happening, again, especially in the medieval Catholic Church, uh, with the, uh, uh, the, the uh, I mean, insofar as uh, a table fellowship and concerns about purity are part of the Galatian story, that's also part of medieval Catholicism. They were, they're reintroducing a lot of uh, extra biblical uh, regulations, you know, kind of a glaring one. I think is the uh, the requirement of clerical celibacy, and the the reformers attack that because that's an extra biblical requirement. But I think they could attack it on the basis of saying this is a Judaizing move because you're you're concerned with this kind of purity that no longer no longer pertains. And it's interesting to see how often the reformers and even more so post Reformation, seventeenth, uh, sixteenth, uh, and seventeenth century later later. Uh, uh, writers 
um, characterize uh, a, a Catholicism as a kind of Juda Judaizing uh, system. Uh, and that's, uh, they, they're partly talking about the doctrine of justification, but they're also talking about the way that um, the sacramental system of the Catholic Church operated, and again, particularly in the late medieval period. Oh, that's, that's really helpful. Obviously, I'm sure, that, as I said, maybe follow-ups, we can talk more about it, I'm sure, here, but uh, Peter, I'm, I know you've got some great material. And we thought, as one person came up to me and just said, isn't it great to finish the day with catastrophe? Like, let's, <laughs> let's finish really well. Peter, you can start your next session by all means. Well, I hope, I'm hoping that uh, by the end of my catastrophe lecture that uh, there's, a, there's a little uptick. Um, there's life after catastrophe. Let's, let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this day. We thank you for the study we've been able to do, the conversations we've been able to have. I thank you for the technology that enables me to be present, at least to this extent. And I pray for uh, my words would be uh, accurate and truthful, and that it would be uh, of benefit to those who hear. And I pray that you would give us, uh, as we discuss um, uh, the uh, the reality of catastrophe uh, in your world and in your history, we pray that you would give us a great confidence and hope in you, the God who raises the dead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we're living in a world, as Andrew detailed in his opening lecture yesterday, we're living in a world that's in turmoil, where things seem to be happening at a more rapid pace. Maybe it's just a matter of us knowing that they're happening at a more rapid pace, but that itself is disorienting. We're living in a world where there doesn't seem to be any stable ground beneath our feet. Um, Zygmunt Bauman um, talks about this as liquid life, liquid modernity. Uh, everything's changing so rapidly technologically, morally, uh, and we are left with the feeling, a feeling of disorientation and a feeling that the, the world as we know it is crumbling. Uh, and I, I wanna sit on that, that, uh, um, that experience for a moment because I, I, I think it's, it'd be a mistake to think, oh, well, uh, uh, that's not happening, to reassure ourselves, to think that perhaps that we're, we've constructed a world that is impervious to destruction, that would be a mistake, that we've been able to construct a world that is uh, catastrophe-proof, we haven't. Um, as we like to say around my uh, the, the uh, institute that I run here in, in, uh, in Birmingham, uh, worlds die. Uh, we know that from just the merest glance at history. We don't live in, uh, uh, the, Europe is not controlled from the city of Rome as it was, once was. The church, a large segment of the church is controlled from the city of Rome, but the church as a whole is not. We don't live in the Roman world. We don't live in the medieval world. Uh, as much as we uh, are heirs of those previous civilizations, we don't live in those civilizations. Uh, David Gress in a book called From Plato to NATO talks about Western civilization as a series 
of Western civilizations. Uh, his, his title is meant to be ironic. He doesn't think that there's a, a direct continuity from Plato to NATO. He thinks that there's a series of Western civilizations that have certain continuities between them, but are not the same as each other. Um, the Western world of the Enlightenment is not the same as the Western world that we live in today, or the same as the Western world that was existing in the late Middle Ages or the Reformation era. Uh, worlds die. Um, that, that death can take a variety of different forms. Um, sometimes it means a shift in the position that a particular nation has within, uh, within the uh, family of nations around the world. I'm thinking of the, uh, the change from the uh, early part of the 20th century for the British Empire or the, you know, the heyday of the British Empire in the 19th century up until the present day. Britain is still a big player on the global stage, but nothing like it was a century and a half ago. Um, it, still has, uh, it still has a significant uh, role, but uh, it's been succeeded by um, currently by the United States, but there's no reason to think that that's permanent. Um, but that what, what, what's happened to Britain is not a disappearance. I mean, you're still there. <laughs> uh, and uh, you you're still have the uh, British civilization that you had in, in a form, but it's different from the form that it had uh, during the heyday of the British Empire. Um, that's, that's one way a world can end. A world can end uh, more catastrophically. Um, I mean, the, the Nazi regime was a world that came crumbling down, fortunately. The, the Soviet bloc was a world that, was, that came crumbling down uh, in the late 80s and early 90s, fortunately. Um, the old regime of France came crumbling down that, that, uh, in, and, and came crumbling down very rapidly um, uh, from, uh, from, the, from the time that the Bastille fell, July 14th, 1789, until the time that the French king was executed was a matter of three or four years. Uh, and almost instantly, almost as soon as the revolutionaries took over the, the various the legislating institutions. Uh, they abolished um, they abolished inherited nobility. I mean, the, the old regime was gone very rapidly, and a very different France has emerged from that. Um, the 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 Russian Revolution uh, caused a, a very rapid change. An old world died, a new world came into being, and it uh, the the actual transition happened over the course of. Uh, the uh, important important points happen over the course of a few years, sometimes a few decades. And we see this in the Bible. I mean, the Bible is a history of God erecting worlds and organizing worlds and then judging worlds. Um, I mean, you have uh, the flood that judged the world that then was, as Peter calls it, and that world is gone. You know, that and that's not recovered. You have the world of the tabernacle and of the the, the mosaic system that comes to an end in the early part of 1 Samuel and that comes to an end in the, that historically that's the latter part of the period of the judges. And that, uh, that's, um, that mosaic order, the tabernacle is never, never restored, never put back together. Uh, something else emerges from it. And then you, ha you have the monarchy. And of course the monarchy lasts until uh, the Babylonian invasion of the exile. And then that world comes to an end and something else emerges. You have 70 years of exile and then a return. You have uh, a, uh, you have different worlds emerge, even within the Book of Kings, you can see that there are different 
Israel is organized in different ways. I've, I've been talking about uh, the, the, the movement from the uh, United Kingdom of David and Solomon to the divided kingdom that lasts from Solomon until the fall of Samaria to the Assyrians, and then the, uh, the kingdom of Judah uh, that uh, continues on for um, a while past the fall of Samaria and then falls to the Babylonians. Those are different phases of the history of Israel during the monarchy. History, history is not a seamless web. Sometimes, sometimes historians or uh, think, thinkers use that kind of uh, 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 that kind of language and and say that the every, everything is continuity. I don't think that's true. I think there are, there are fissures in history. There are worlds that end and worlds that begin, and they often end and begin in very rapid ways, um, very very quickly. Uh, I, I mentioned a couple of historical examples. We can see this in the Kingdom of Judah. From the time of Josiah's death, and remember Josiah is kind of the high point, uh, one of the high points of the history of Judah. He's the great law keeper, as I as I mentioned. Golly, was that earlier today? It seems like ages ago. I think it was earlier today. Um, he was the great law keeper uh, in in the history of the kings. Uh, he is the one who uh, purges Judah of high places and shrines. He his, as we looked saw in the last session, his reform extends up into the northern kingdom. Uh, and uh, yet from his death until the, uh, con the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple is a matter of about 20 years. From this great high point until no temple, no king, Israel, uh, Judah, uh, many of the people of Judah removed from the land, that's a matter of a, 20, a tumultuous 20-year period. Uh, there are uh, several different kings that reign the couple kings that reigned for uh, 11 years each, there are a couple kings that reigned for a few months, total of about 22 years, 22 and a half years, and then, and then Judah is gone. That's pretty quick. Uh, and uh, interestingly, uh, both historically, uh, outside of scripture and in scripture, uh, catastrophic endings are um, often associated with pandemics and plagues. Um, this is one of the one of the judgments that um, Jeremiah regularly predicts for Judah. You're going to have sword, famine, and pestilence. Those are the the three horsemen of the apocalypse, if you will, that he predicts that are going to come on Judah. Sword, the sword of the invading Babylonians. Uh, the uh, the famine that will result from the Babylonian invasion because the Babylonians don't want to. Uh, they'll destroy crops to make sure that they keep the people of Judah subjected to them, uh, to their conquest. The famine that comes when you have a disruption like that, or a famine and then the pestilence that follows on it. That's not, that's not a picture or a symbol of something else. It's an actual part of the decreation of Judah. Uh, pestilence is part of that. Historically, that's been a part of uh, the collapse of various civilizations. Uh, Kyle Harper in a book uh, about the fall of Rome, I can't remember the the, the title, a recent book about the, the end of the Roman Empire. And he points out that uh, the, we, 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 uh, classically historians have focused on the, the failures of the leaders of late, the late Roman Empire uh, as the cause of the collapse of Rome, their political failures, military failures, failures of character. Uh, but he says that that's, while that's true, the environment, is not just a backdrop. The environment plays a role in the uh, 
end of the Roman Empire. Uh, there are earthquakes and there are other kinds of natural catastrophe. And there are a lot of pandemics uh, that uh, uh, go through the, uh, <coughs> excuse me, go through the Roman world in the second to the fourth century AD. So all of that to uh, uh, come up, with, to start with the bad news, that worlds genuinely do end. Catastrophes do happen. We're not immune to that. We have not constructed a safe space that's uh, safe from that kind of upheaval. Um, and even if, again, if, if the, uh, it, I'm not necessarily talking about play, things uh, being uh, expunged from the map, although sometimes that happens. Uh, but even if that doesn't happen, you have this, uh, this upheaval that changes the, the power dynamics of the nations of the world or changes the dominant culture of a particular nation. And those kind of upheavals can happen and they can happen rapidly. And we may, I'm not saying we are, but I, I think we may be going through a period of that uh, kind of, in that kind of transition. Um, of one magnitude or another. I don't know how, what magnitude we're talking about, or even if we're in that kind of transition, but it feels that way, certainly, that the end of the world, the world as we know it is coming to an end. So how should we respond to that? What should we think about that kind of situation? Kings gives us some insight into that because Kings is a history that culminates in catastrophe culminates in a catastrophe for the Northern Kingdom with the Assyrian invasion and the conquest of Samaria. It's cata catastrophic for the Southern Kingdom with the Babylonians coming in. Uh, and I wanna sketch some elements of the theology of catastrophe that we get from uh, the Book of Kings. And the first point we can make is that uh, catastrophes, uh, worlds ending and dying, uh, that's not random. Uh, it's not a matter of, uh, we shouldn't think of this in, as an organic, in, using organic metaphors primarily. Uh, that's often the way that uh, uh, historians, at least his, uh, uh, older historians have thought about the, you have civilizations that are born, they grow, they go through, uh, they reach their maturity, uh, they become old, they enter into their senescence and then they kind of die. And there's this kind of natural life cycle to, uh, to uh, civilizations or to nations. Um, I don't think that's the, the best biblical way to think about uh, the end of a, end of a world. Uh, nor, nor is it helpful, particularly helpful to think about in terms of gravity. I mean, that's, that's the way that, uh, our, that, that's the metaphor behind the rise and fall um, language that we often use. Uh, things go up, but of course, everything that go up, goes up has to come down. So there's a kind of gravitational pull that uh, will kind of naturally bring, uh, bring things down to the ground. Um, those are impersonal forces. Those are impersonal ways of describing what's going on, but we don't live in an impersonal universe. We live in a universe that's uh, governed by uh, a, 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 th a three-personed God who is uh, thoroughly and inherently personal, who has a personal relationship with us and with his world, 
God seems to have a personal relationship even with inanimate things. He talks to things and things obey him, even things that uh, don't seem to be capable of acts of obedience obey God. Um, he, he commands storms and earthquakes and uh, hailstorms and so on. Um, we live in a personal universe and uh, the, the uh, catastrophes are the result of the action of this personal God. Um, uh, the, uh, not, not, not the result of some kind of impersonal organic or mechanistic or gravitational kind of process. Uh, and God is active, blessing and cursing. He's active, uh, uh, a, a ri rising, a raising up and uh, making fall. Of, uh, Andrew, in his first talk, uh, yes, yesterday was it yesterday? Yes, it was yesterday. You talked yesterday. Uh, cited Psalm seventy-five, um, not from the east nor from the west, but from the Lord comes exaltation. Uh, what makes nations rise? What makes them fall? Well. It's the Lord who makes them rise. Why does he make them rise? Various reasons. Sometimes he makes them rise because he's favorable to them because they're faithful. Sometimes he makes them rise. I'm using the gravitational language that I said I wouldn't use, but um, sometimes he, he makes them powerful because he's going to use them for his own purposes. Why, why are the Assyrians so powerful all of a sudden? Well, they're a weapon. Uh, they're the ax in the hand of the Lord, Isaiah says. And the Lord is going to chop down Samaria using the axe of the Assyrians. And then the axe is going to get kind of boastful. The axe is going to get kind of proud of his axe. Look what I did. I chopped down uh, Samaria. I chopped down uh, a lot of nations. Look at me. Look at me. And the Lord will judge his axe. Um, the axe doesn't have any, this is all in Isaiah 10. The axe doesn't have any grounds for boasting against the one who wields the axe. So sometimes the Lord makes nations powerful and great because he's going to use them for uh, uh, some purpose. Uh, in the case of Israel and Judah, uh, he, uh, he makes them great because of his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, because of the faithfulness of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he makes the kingdom great, partly because of the, uh, the uh, heart of David which is a heart devoted to the Lord, I, that doesn't mean David is sinless. It means that David doesn't do what Solomon did. David sins, and he sins pretty, pretty uh, egregiously, but he never departs from the Lord, and he clings to the Lord. He never worships idols. I think that's what it means when it says that a man after his own heart. I think that's the kind of, it's the, it's the loyalty that David shows to the Lord that's, uh, that distinguishes him among all the kings. His heart isn't divided between different masters. So partly for that reason, uh, the Lord makes Judah, uh, makes Israel great. And then he brings the catastrophe of exile on them because of their sins. And that's quite explicit in 2 Kings 17. Now, let me read a bit of that. I read some of it before, but this will be uh, a little bit earlier in the chapter, uh, beginning of verse 7. He's just, uh, the writer has just mentioned that the Assyrians captured Samaria, carried Israel away, into exile. And then it says, this came about because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up from the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they had feared other gods and walked into the customs of the nations, whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel, and in the customs of the kings of Israel, which they had introduced. And the sons of Israel did things secretly, which were not right, against the Lord their God. Moreover, they built for themselves high places in all their towns and watched and from watchtower to fortified city. 
And they set up for themselves sacred pillars in Asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they burned incense on all the high places as the nations did, which the Lord had uh, carried away to exile before them. And they, uh, this, they, and they did evil things provoking the Lord. And they served idols concerning which the Lord had said, you shall not do this thing. And then he goes on to talk about the prophets that they ignored and rejected that I, I quoted earlier. So why, why, does, why, does Samaria, uh, why does Samaria overtaken and, and conquered by the Syrians? It's because they sinned against the Lord. And as the Lord had threatened, when his people depart from him, he will be patient. He'll be long-suffering. He won't take action immediately. But at some point, he will take action and he will judge. And he does that uh, when he sends the Assyrians in against uh, Samaria. It's interesting here that he accuses them of uh, walking in the customs of the nations, that is the Canaanites. The people of Israel became basically uh, imitators of the Canaanites. And if you're imitators of the Canaanites, then you're going to suffer the fate of the Canaanites, which is to be expelled from the land. Uh, the Pentateuch, uh, the Torah talks about it as being uh, as being vomited from the land. Uh, the Canaanites uh, uh, committed abominations on the land, made the land sick. So the land vomit, vomited out the Canaanites. The same thing is happening now to Israel and it's gonna happen to Judah. They, uh, they're doing Canaanite things and so they get Canaanite treatment. Uh, they came in to utterly destroy the Canaanites, but because they became Canaanites, they themselves get utter, utterly destroyed. This is an act of justice, it's God's wrath, but it's a wrath that's uh, operating according to God's justice. And he's bringing this judgment against uh, uh, Israel here and then also Judah. Uh, he's the judge, he's the one who uh, raises up, he's the one who overthrows. Uh, catastrophes come from the hand of the Lord, not because of, uh, not, uh, that's the primary factor. All these other factors that we can identify, you know, uh, mounting debt, that's broken many nations. Okay, um, and uh, or military defeat that's that's been that's broken many nations, but behind all that, and in in with and under all that, the Lord is using these these kinds of events to bring about His own purposes and to carry out His justice against uh, those who defy Him, uh, and um, uh, and uh, raising up those who uh, with whom He's pleased. So catastrophes aren't random. They're the result of God's action. The other, another thing we can recognize is the, the, the extent of the catastrophe, especially for Judah. Uh, Judah's exile really is uh, the death of Judah. And I, I use the phrase worlds die. And I think that that is not an exaggeration for what happens to Judah. Um, what makes Judah the people of God? What makes Judah Judah? Uh, they are the people governed by the Davidic kings. But after Nebuchadnezzar invades and conquers, they don't have a Davidic king. There are still people in the land, but there's no king ruling over them. The, the only Davidic king that's still around is in Babylonian exile uh, in the court of uh, first Nebuchadnezzar and then his successors. So no Davidic king. Uh, the temple is part of what makes Judah, Judah. They're the housekeeping nation that, uh, you know, Adam Smith, says England is a nation of shopkeepers. Uh, Israel is a nation of temple keepers. They're housekeepers. They're the, they're the people, they're priestly people that are supposed to keep the house of God and maintain it and uh, maintain it as a house of prayer for the nations, as I spoke about earlier. 
Um, but now the temple's gone. Nebuchadnezzar destroys it and then carts away a lot of the material from the temple off to Babylon. Um, there's no temple. The land, that's, that's, that's part of the Abrahamic promise. That goes all the way back to the, to the fathers. Uh, and there are, there are still people in the land, but the, the nobility and the leaders of the land have been taken. Uh, the people who are left in the land can't mount any resistance. They're under the control of the Babylonians, then under the control of the Persians. Uh, they don't have any autonomy, uh, and they, they don't really have control of their own land. All the things that make Judah, Judah are gone. Um, and uh, there's, a, there's an interesting numerical pattern that kind of reinforces this, uh, uh, this, uh, the, the extent of the catastrophe, the extent of the death of Judah. Um, you have, <coughs> excuse me, in the history of Judah, you have three cycles of seven kings. You have six kings, and then Athaliah is the seventh after Solomon. And Athaliah, of course, is the daughter of Ahab who marries into the Davidic family, and she takes over after Jehu has killed all the, uh, all the, all the kings and princes. And then after Athaliah is taken over, you have six more kings, and then Manasseh, okay, worst king in the, in the southern kingdom's history. Then you got six more kings, and Nebuchadnezzar comes. You have the six plus one pattern over and over again, which, you know, might be, you might think, oh, good, that's a, that's a creation pattern, six days plus a Sabbath. Um, only this is kind of an inverted creation pattern. This is a six plus one that's uh, a decreation. It's an undoing of, uh, of Judah. Uh, and at each stage, uh, it's, it's a little bit more undone. Athaliah undoes it quite a bit, but uh, Judah survives. Manasseh undoes it a lot. And it's because of Manasseh's sins that Judah is going to be judged. We, I read that earlier when uh, even in spite of Josiah's law keeping, um, uh, the Lord is so angry because of Manasseh's sins. Manasseh makes things even worse. And then the definitive, the, the, in the third cycle, the, the, seventh, the third seventh king is Nebuchadnezzar, who brings about the end of Judah. So that numerical pattern suggests a kind of undoing of the, the world that is Judah. Uh, another thing that reinforces this is the uh, the way that the uh, uh, the last chapter of Kings describes the um, the the, uh, uh, the the plundering of the temple by the Babylonians, uh, and especially we have this in Second Kings twenty five verses thirteen and following. Uh, I mentioned earlier today that there are these two great bronze pillars that are standing at the sides of the doorway of the temple, the bronze pillars which are in the house of the Lord and the stands and the bronze sea, which are in the house of the Lord, the uh, Chaldeans broke in pieces and carry the bronze to Babylon. They took away the pots, the shovels, the snuffer, the spoons, all the bronze vessels, which are used in the temple service. The captain of the guard, which took away the fire pans, the basins, what was the fine gold and what was fine silver. So all the, all the, all the precious things of the temple are taken away. And then we have uh, verse 16, the two pillars, the one sea, the stands which Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all these was beyond weight. The height of the one pillar was 18 cubits and a bronze capital was on it. And the height of the capital was three cubits and a network of pomegranates on the capital all around all of bronze. And the second pillar was like it with these, with the capital, with the network. Now, so verse 17, this is second, second Kings 25, 17. Why? I mean, we, are, we already knew what, the, what they were like. Uh, 
what these pillars were like. We we were told that back in First Kings when we first when the the construction was described. Now, verse 17 almost feels like it's another account of the construction of these pillars, but the opposite is what's in fact happening. These pillars are being cut in pieces in order to be carried off to Babylon. That's what we're told in, uh, uh, in verse 13. Um, but it's described as if it were a, a, a kind of a construction project. It's a de deconstruction project. It's, a, it's an unbuilding of the temple. All the things that were carried into the temple are now being carried out. The things that were built up are being built down or unbuilt, and uh, now they're being taken away to another place. Another, another little literary hint of the extent of the catastrophe for Judah. Uh, the house is being unbuilt, their whole civilization, their whole world is being undone by the Babylonian invasion. Uh, but as I said, I don't, I don't want to leave you with catastrophe here at the end of the day. And I don't think Kings leaves us with catastrophe. Uh, especially when we look ahead from Kings to what's happening in some of the later parts of the Old Testament and the accounts of the exilic life of Israel. But I think even within Kings, we have this little vignette at the end. The king has been taken into exile. The vessels of the temple have been taken into exile. Um, and that truly is a catastrophe for Israel. But uh, uh, the, the God of Israel is a God who brings life from the dead. He's a God who brings blessing from catastrophe. And even in the midst of the catastrophe, he's accomplishing his purpose for Israel because what he's doing is sending, he's spreading out Jews, the people of Judah, into a Gentile empire. And he's sending the, uh, some of the uh, elements of his house, some of the furnishings of his house to Babylon. And we know from Ezekiel, if you read Ezekiel 8 through 11, you'll, what, you'll see Ezekiel's vision of the temple and the glory of the Lord in the temple. And the glory of the Lord is leaving the temple. The temple that, that Nebuchadnezzar destroys is empty. The Lord's presence is not there. And where is the glory of the Lord going? It's going east. It's going off to the, uh, across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives, stops on the Mount of Olives for a moment. And then it continues on east, which is the direction of Babylon. Uh, the glory of the Lord goes into exile with his people, along with the furnishings of his house. It's dismantled. But at, at, the, end of, at the end of Kings, what we actually have in Babylon is a Davidic king, Jehoiachin, the, uh, the furnishings of the Lord's house. And it's not in, not in Kings, but it's in Ezekiel. The glory of the Lord is with his people in exile. He shares that exile with them. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, that it's not just the that Jehoiachin is there, but Jehoiachin is actually honored as a king above all the other kings that are in Babylon. This is the very last thing in 2 Kings. Uh, in the uh, 12th month, the 27th day of the month, the 37th year of the exile, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, released Jehoiachin, Jehoiachin rather, uh, king of Judah from prison, he spoke kindly to him, set him on his throne above the throne of the kings which were in, with him in Babylon. Jehoiachin changed his prison clothes and had his meals in the king's presence regularly with all his day, all the days of his life. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given to him by the king, a portion for each day, all the days of his life. Okay, so uh, the end of the, the end of the story 
is catastrophe, but there's these glimpses of what is ahead. The elevation of Jehoiachin is a kind of pledge of what the Lord is going to do with his people once they get into exile. And I think it's, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, accurate to say that although this is a diaspora, it's a dispersion of, of the people of Judah, it is also a deployment. He's sending his people into exile where they are going to uh, uh, worship and serve God. They're going to seek the peace of the city where they've been exiled. Uh, they're going to be elevated uh, in those positions, in, 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 in those Gentile empires. Think of all the people that we, all the named people that we know uh, during the exile. Who, who, who do we know from the exilic period of Israel's history? Well, we know Daniel. Daniel's another Joseph. <clears throat> Daniel is, uh, has a high position in the Babylonian Empire the way Joseph had in Egypt. Uh, we've got the three friends of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to use their Babylonian names. And they're also prominent members of, the, of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, court. Um, the, Jews that, the Jews that we meet in the book of Daniel are all, high, all hold high positions in a Gentile empire. Or we can think of uh, Esther, who becomes queen to the king of, king of Persia, or Mordecai. Mordecai is as much the, um, the focus of the book of Esther as Esther is. I say that because of the way the book of Esther ends. It doesn't, talk, it doesn't end talking about Esther's uh, reign. Esther's obviously there, but it talks about the elevation of Mordecai and the authority that Mordecai had in, uh, in Persia. Or Nehemiah. Right? Nehemiah is in the, um, he's the cupbearer to the king. You know, that sounds, you know, he's, he's a butler, you know, kind of mid-level bureaucrat. Cupbearer to the king is an important position. It's a highly trusted position because if you're the cupbearer, then you've got to be, you're the guy that he trusts not to give you poison. Okay? The king trusts him not to give poison. <clears throat> that's, that's a position of, as we know from the opening chapters of Nehemiah, he's got direct access to the Persian king. Uh, virtually every, every, everyone we know that goes into exile <laughs> ends up elevated and uh, serving, testifying and witnessing to the Lord. And the kings respond to that. Nebuchadnezzar makes some of the most uh, 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 amazing declarations about the sovereignty of God in all the Bible. It comes from the mouth of the Babylonian king. Read the last few verses of Daniel 4. It's, it's uh, quite amazing. Those are, those are the words of the, of the Babylonian, the Gentile, the pagan, the converted pagan king. So when, when uh, the Lord sends his people into exile, it's, it is a judgment, but that judgment is going to be turned to good for the Gentiles. This is a judgment, but it's also part of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise to bless all the nations through Abraham's seed. Uh, even the temple vessels that go into exile, um, I've been doing, a, a, along with some colleagues at Theopolis, I've been doing a podcast on the book of Daniel recently. Uh, and James B. John, whom some of you may know, is a regular on our podcast. He, he lives there in London and uh, is now studying for his PhD at Cambridge. And uh, uh, we were talking about the first chapter of Daniel several months ago. 
And the Daniel opens with a, a list of some of the furnishings that come from the temple and go into Babylon. Um, you kind of forget about those. Um, but uh, James characterized them as a depth charge. That phrase in my notes is from James B. John. Um, they're a depth charge. You know, these are, they're probably hidden away in a Babylonian treasury somewhere. Uh, nobody's using them until Daniel uh, chapter five, when Belshazzar pulls them out of their out of the closet, <laughs> uh, and he begins using them in order to worship the gods of Babylon. So he's he's using God's things, God's God's implements of worship, to worship idols. And uh, you probably know what happens to Belshazzar. He doesn't last long after that. Uh, that is the the last evening of his reign, the last evening of Babylon, because uh, the the Medes and the Persians are at the gates and they sneak in and uh, they take over Babylon uh, that very night. So the you know, even the temple vessels they're going into exile, but the temple vessels are going into exile in a sense as a kind of deployment. Uh, they're holy things, and if you manhandle and misuse the holy things, then the Lord is going to take vengeance. If you misuse the holy people, then things are going to get even get worse. Uh, and uh, so the, uh, the, the people of Judah go into, go into exile, but also have this, uh, uh, have this hope that the Lord is going to use them, and he does use them to bring blessing to the Gentiles and to, uh, and to preserve his people, and not just to preserve them, but to make them flourish while they're in exile. That, along with what I said at the end of the last uh, lecture about the reunion of, Jews and, uh, of Judah and, uh, and Israel during the course of the exile, and they're, they're merging together into a new form of the people of God who are identified as Jews when they come out of, when they come out of exile. Um, so that, I, I want to generalize from that because I think that's true of every catastrophe. Uh, the Lord brings catastrophes on his people, as he does in Kings because of the sins of his people. He brings catastrophe on the church and on nations that have been influenced and, and, uh, and transformed by the gospel. He brings judgment. Uh, but in that judgment and through that judgment, the Lord is also opening up new opportunities for uh, ministry and service and for mission. Uh, I, think about, I would think about uh, one particular application uh, that uh, we could put get to our own day. I mean, I, I've been thinking for a long time in terms of exile as a, as a paradigm for thinking about the church's current position in, in most, of, most of the West. Churches still exist. I mean, you, you all have an established church, uh, but I think it's fair to say that the church doesn't have the kind of uh, clout, cultural clout. Uh, it doesn't set the cultural agenda the way it... Uh, the way it has in past generations. Um, it, uh, at its worst, it's uh, scrambling to catch up with the zeitgeist. Um, we need to, uh, we need to, uh, the, church, the Church of England I, I saw from, uh, from, I don't know if it was a bishop or not, but uh, some, some leader in the Church of England say, the Church of England has to start doing uh, uh, same-sex marriages we just we need to we need to accept that as a as a given uh, and and bless those unions um, or um, 
I, I guess it, I guess it was a Matt Hancock to get it to get into the uh, to get into the current the current uh, I guess last week's news. It's not this week's news. That's last week's news. But uh, who was it? it was one of, it was a bishop in the Church of England who said, you know, a middle aged guy having a fling. So what? But I'm worried about him not observing the COVID rules. What the heck? This is a bishop in the Church of England. Okay, so the that's all. Those are uh, those are minor minor illustrations of the church no longer setting the moral agenda for your country or mine. Uh, other forces are setting that agenda, and the church is too often trying to accommodate to that agenda, trying to catch up with a, an agenda that is. Uh, appalling, I think, to our God. Um, and uh, so uh, in that sense, uh, we are in a kind of political exile, even with the freedoms that we have, we're in a kind of exile, we're kind of marginal. Uh, but I think that the, the history of kings, and especially as we extend this into the exilic books of the Old Testament, that encourages us to think that the Lord has his people salted within these uh, rebellious institutions. And those people are like Daniel. There are Daniels that are in the, uh, the there are Daniels in the British government. There are Daniels in the American government. There are Daniels in the high tech and in, in the tech industry um, who believers whom the Lord has placed there in order to be witnesses to those powers. Because uh, that's what the Lord does when he scatters his people because of our unfaithfulness. He scatters us so that uh, we will have new opportunities to serve him. So uh, in the midst of catastrophe, we should be looking for opportunities uh, and we should be looking at uh, our dispersal and uh, those, uh, those pos the position of weakness is actually a position of opportunity uh, for serving God and for um, seeking to extend his kingdom. Thanks very much. Okay, questions, anybody who's, just want to see if there's anybody who's not gone yet. Okay, yep, you haven't, I don't think. I lost sound. There. Nope. Yeah. There we go. Um, the framing, thanks very much. The, the framing of catastrophe as coming about via kind of God's blessing leading to material blessing on a people, that material blessing leading to uh, kind of arrogance and idolatry and then God's judgment for that idolatry and then a scattering, um, really helpful. That seems to be a pretty similar echoing of the story of Babel. Am I just imagining that echoing? And if I'm not imagining that echoing, why is that echoing? Why is there that shape to the kind of King's narrative coming from the story of Babel? Yeah. Uh, it, it's it's not uh, uh, it is echoing I think um, so you you weren't uh, you weren't imagining that um, I think that uh, there are a couple ways I, I would I would think about this I mean if you think about the the sequence of events in Genesis uh, 
uh, the scattering at Babel is the preliminary to uh, the, um, that's the genealogy that follows the Tower of Babel episode is the genealogy that leads to Abraham. So the scattering of the nations at Babel produces this uh, new initiative that the Lord is making through Abraham. And I would see that as one aspect of it. That does mean that Judah has become a kind of Babel um, because you have those dynamics. And I think that's, that is true. I think there's, there are reasons to think about um, the, uh, I think Jeremiah sets up, sets up uh, the exile in those kind of terms, not using, not using Babel, but using Egypt and characterizes uh, Jerusalem and Judah as a kind of Egypt and the people who are going to exile as being on a kind of exodus out of an oppressive and idolatrous Judah. So those, uh, uh, I think you, you could overlay the story of Babylon to that too. Judah has become a kind of Babel. And so when God's judgment falls, it scatters the people. Uh, as you were talking, this is not the direction your question went, but as you were talking, I did want to qualify what I said about catastrophe. Um, I do think that the, the, uh, the, the uh, maybe the definition or at least the, our evaluation of catastrophe shifts to some degree in the new covenant um, uh, because of the, uh, the reality of the cruci crucified Jesus, crucifixion of Jesus and our share in the crucifixion. Uh, I think it's already true in the old covenant that there is a kind of right, I mean, Job, Job is a great example, a, a righteous suffering uh, that's not a matter of God judging. Uh, but I think that's heightened, deepened in the new covenant. Uh, and I don't want to uh, make a uh, make a kind of uh, Job's, Job's friends equation of uh, uh, suffering with unfaithfulness. I think the Lord puts his church into positions of suffering and, uh, and, uh, uh, and persecution. It's not always because of our sins, but that's all. Uh, I mean, Stephen is not martyred because of his sin. Stephen is martyred because he's faithful. Uh, and his, but his death has the same kind of effect. His death means the dispersion of people from Jerusalem. It's the begin, really the beginning of, in Acts, it's really the beginning of the mission outside of Jerusalem. It's after, it's after Stephen dies that people start leaving. And they take the gospel to Samaria, and then they take the gospel to the Gentiles, and they take the gospel to Rome. That's all kind of growing out of the martyrdom of Stephen, which is not because of any sin of Stephen. He's, he's sharing in the sufferings of Christ, and that's fruitful. So I, I want to make sure that that's part of our understanding of what, what is happening in our own lives and also in the lives of, you know, you have churches all over the world who are suffering. Uh, it's not because God is judging them. It's because they're being faithful in the face of uh in the face of satanic power uh, and their suffering, the Lord is going to, I, I trust the Lord is going to vindicate them and the Lord is going to use that to grow his church. Okay, last question of the day, Andrew. Yeah. Thank you, Peter. I, I know you've also done a commentary on Matthew. I wondered how you interpret the parable in Matthew 13. I know there's several there, but the one where the, uh, Jesus says to let the weeds and the tares grow together till the end of the age, yeah. alongside this understanding you've been sharing. Obviously, yeah. to recognize God's judgment. But. Right. Um, well, historically, traditionally, of course, that's been that's been understood as a description of the church age. That was 
a, a really important parable for Augustine, um, looking at the church age as an age when both tares and wheats are growing up, tares and wheat are growing up. Um, and I think that's, I think that's a, that has some valid application. Um, uh, and I, I want to, I'll come back to that in a second, but I, I'm, uh, I'm pretty persuaded. I, I wouldn't say I'm 100% persuaded, but uh, the position I took in my commentary, so now it's in writing, so I have to defend it, um, is that uh, the parable, many of the parables, um, uh, this, the, one, of the, one of the questions for interpreting the parables is the, the, the starting point of the story. It's there, um, is this about beginning with Jesus and moving on from Jesus? Or is Jesus the climax of the story that begins earlier? And sometimes it's really obvious that the, the, the parable is climaxing with Jesus. So you think of the parable of the vineyard and the tenants in the vineyard. Um, the, the, Lord, the Lord of the vineyard has given the vineyard to tenants and he sends his servants uh, and those servants are the prophets and then they culminate with the son. So that's a, that's a story about Israel. And the end point of the story is Jesus. And then the judgment that comes on the tenants because they reject the son. And that's a warning, of course, to Jesus' own contemporaries. They, and they recognize <laughs> uh, that Jesus is talking about them. That's one of the parables that they understand, at least to that extent. And I, I, so I, I, I tried to think through the parables and, and the wheat and the tares was one of them, trying to think through the parables in those terms as culminating with Jesus, the judgment that's at the end of that parable is the judgment that's about to arrive that Jesus, John and then Jesus are warning about. Uh, that's, not a that's not talking about the final judgment. I don't think it's talking about the judgment that is uh, going to arrive within the generation of the apostles. So the, the, sowing, of the sowing of the field is something that happened. Uh, the image of sowing is an image of return from exile in some of the prophets. Uh, the sowing of the field is the beginning of the exilic, uh, post-exilic period, the beginning of the new Israel after the exile. And within that, there are tares and wheats growing and then wheat growing, and then the, the Lord is going to harvest and the judgment and the sifting and the separating are going to happen with Jesus and in the aftermath of Jesus' ministry. So that, I think that's what the parable is referring to. Uh, I think it, it, you can, I think the, the basic idea applies uh, you know, if, if I'm looking out at a, uh, at a church that I'm uh, pastoring, uh, I'm, this is the people of God, but uh, I suspect that there are people out there that are uh, not believers, not yet believers, that are tares. What do I do with them? Uh, and I think the, the instruction, uh, let them grow together until the harvest. Uh, I think that's that, that kind of patience is, is, a, is a proper kind of instruction. If you think about the whole history of the church, there's something to that too, that the Lord will certainly a final judgment to come and a final sifting. And that's when the, the believers and unbelievers in the church will be separated finally. Uh, so I think it applies to that, but I think the actual referent is to that, is to um, the history of Israel culminating with the crisis time of Jesus. <laughs> 